0: Welcome to Barbarians at Work. I'm David Stackweather. I'm recording this October 29th from the Texas Hill Country where it's finally cold and rainy. Um, So after a very long summer of 95 plus degrees every single day, it's very nice to have uh, dense cloud cover and drizzle uh, and uh, cold enough weather to wear a jacket. The last episode, I talked about the four points that employees should look out for when uh, they're trying to determine if there are pathological things happening in their organizations. And if you recall, this was based on a short video of a Q&A session from one of the talks that Jordan Peterson gave some time ago. Just to re, uh, reiterate, go back to those four things real quick. The first one was being required to do things as the employee that make you ashamed or weak and that you should stop doing those. That's probably generally good life advice. The second was that systems go out of control progressively, slowly at first, and then it kind of snowballs in on itself. And that's true in organizations and in just about anything else in life. Chaos kind of grows over time unless it's managed. The third thing is is that much of the tyrannical behavior is happening in the mid-levels in today's organizations. And this is what I'm going to talk about specifically today. And then finally, that All this stuff multiplies, this chaos in organizations multiplies because sensible people say nothing when they should say something. So those were the four ideas that we talked about in the last last episode. And I promised that I would come back to this idea about the mid-levels and the tyranny in the mid-levels. And if you're a senior leader in the organization, how can you tell if you might have a problem with someone because you're not day-to-day involved in – the work of this individual or the the work of all your organization, you, you're managing it, but you you may be managing it like many large organizations in a boardroom with PowerPoint decks and status reports, which are very low resolution tools um, to be able to tell what's really going on. You don't get a lot of uh, clarity on what's really going on in your organization at that level, even though it's, it's extremely common in large organizations that that's the level of detail that you get for lots of reasons, but that's just the the fact of it. Um, So if you're a senior leader, or even if you're, you know, you're a mid-level manager yourself, and you're trying to be on the lookout for issues, how can you tell that you may have a problem in the mid-levels in your organizations? Um, Now, over time, I've seen some common themes. I've observed some common things that, although it's not a checklist, and it's not an algorithm that you can, you know, punch in the data, and it spits out whether you have a problem or not, This is more art than science, but it will indicate whether it's worthy of further investigation. And that's my only intent here is to provide something to think about as you're in mostly in the context of status meetings and one-on-ones and those kind of mechanisms of management that are very common. How can you tell if you might have a problem and it's worthy of further investigation? So the first one is very important and and it's specific. It's complaints from multiple angles. I don't mean just complaints. I don't mean people complaining about other people, which is very common and you, you get that six ways from Sunday. I'm talking about complaints from multiple angles, especially when those multiple angles are not natural allies in your organizations. So if a mid-level manager is acting in a tyrannical fashion, they will have caused pain and suffering for the employees, but generally, unless the manager is just in one narrow slice of your organization, they're dealing with other departments, other other pieces of your organization. In some cases, they're dealing with other managers or other employees within those other parts of your organization. And so they're gonna generate a lot of friction because they're gonna be treating everyone in the same poor fashion, If they're on a project and it's a cross-functional project and you have people from finance and people from IT and people from sales and people from design and and people from operations, they're going to generate complaints from all these various people. And some of these people or the mid-level managers in these organizations are going to complain about the behavior of this particular mid-level manager who's acting in a tyrannical way. Now, the reason that I, I make the point of multiple angles who are not natural allies in your organization is because it's easy for us to dismiss almost like children. You know, they're always complaining. So just, you know, tell them to just uh, forget about it. You know, it's, we have tons of toys. You don't have to argue about that. Just move on. You don't want people to obsess over the minor stuff. And a lot of complaints in the corporate environment seem like minor stuff. It's like, just get to work, guys. Why are you complaining about these minor things? And it always seems minor from your, you know, top floor um, office with the mahogany line doors, right? But it, it's, it seems silly and we want to push back and said, just get back to work, just everybody be an adult. But if you're getting complaints from multiple angles who are not natural allies, it indicates that there is a problem of of behavior of that individual, most likely, or it's inconsistent with how the other departments are are operating at at, at the nicest level. But it probably indicates that there's something really wrong with the behavior of that manager, because otherwise, unless there's a specific political angle that you can identify, most mid-level managers, or especially employees, are not going to complain about another person for fear that um, it's gonna bounce back on them, um, especially if that person is, is influential or has some kind of power. And especially if this has been going on for a long time. Um, so it's like you know people don't change. They don't they aren't nice one day and tyrannical the next. And so this is a migration into behavior. And it's unlikely that people are going to complain about it unless it's too much to take. Um, and it's real. It's not just a random, this person didn't fill out the form correctly. and I'm going to complain about it. These are probably real. And they're real either in the behavior or in the interpretation. And either way, you got to deal with it. And so if you get complaints from these multiple angles, you know, finance and IT come and they complain about a manager that works for you. And you think to yourself, well, IT and finance are always at each other's throats, but in this case, they're coming together or I'm hearing it separately, but I'm hearing the same story. You probably have an issue and you shouldn't, uh, you know, give it short shrift. You should really focus on that because it's it's unusual that people who are not natural allies in the organization and are fighting you know, tooth and nail against each other would kind of cause a pause to offensive operations to come and complain about another individual. It indicates that there's something wrong. Now, the other thing about you know these, these mid-level managers who are acting in these tyrannical ways is because of the way people respond to fear, it's likely that their behavior is causing uh, problems in the other departments. Employees aren't doing their best work, things are getting dropped, whatever the case. And so sometimes you get another department or another manager or another employee who will complain about this manager, but they're doing it primarily as a a defense mechanism because they can see that, yeah, my department has problems, but I think the problems are really because of the behavior of this manager. So I want to get ahead of this because I know this manager who's acting in a tyrannical way is going to eventually, you know, throw me, quote unquote, under the bus. And so I want to kind of get ahead of this. But you shouldn't uh, uh, dismiss those because even though the reason they're coming forward with the complaint is, is somewhat of a self-defense mechanism, it's, there's a root problem there that needs to be resolved and you need to give that um, due consideration because otherwise you're going to have this kind of eventually the organization will learn not to complain, not to raise issues. And then the tyrant is kind of unencumbered Um, and then you truly are only getting one side of the story because everybody else will just shut up and they won't say anything because you've communicated unintentionally that you trust this manager so much that it doesn't matter what the complaints are. And I've actually had situations in organizations where the complaints are – complaints of harassment and that you wonder legally how could they continue and the organization just dismissed it and everybody learned very quickly just to keep your mouth shut, don't say anything because even going to HR, even making a complaint of harassment and and in the cases where um, – I've seen at least a couple of cases where the cases of, of uh, the, the – um, Accusation of harassment, let's say, was well founded. I don't know whether you know it violated any law or, or rule. Certainly violated rules of kind of normal uh, behavior in business. But the organization quickly learned there's there's really no point. Why are you going to you're going to shoot yourself in the foot if you raise this objection? You just need to either need to get out of the organization or just just deal with it um, and suffer. And in all too many times, people suffer and then they basically become inert in the organization. Um, so that's the the uh, the first one. Complaints from multiple angles. Take them seriously. Understand that if you're getting complaints from multiple angles, and you do have a problem with one of your managers, they're probably creating other problems in the organization. They're probably creating the same uh, performance problems that that tyrannical manager will complain about, or justify their position, or justify their behavior with. It's a it's a self sealing system at some level that they've created. Um, the second one is a hero singing their own praises. So if you have a mid-level manager who is constantly singing their own praises, especially about how they prevented disaster, right? If it weren't for all these other idiots, and if I wasn't there, it would have been a disaster. The whole thing would have blown up. Everybody would have embarrassed. We would be on the five o'clock news. Um, but I was there and I solved it. And this is kind of a, uh, a defense mechanism that some of these managers will use when the complaints come—that well, they're difficult to deal with, or they yell at people, or the justification will be, um, well, if I wasn't riding them very hard, if I wasn't pushing them so hard, then nothing would get done. And I've, you know, seen this time and time again, uh, especially because a lot of the management structure and processes get get reduced to powerpoints and status reports. Which you know, powerpoints and status reports don't reflect reality, and so people, mid-level managers uh, that are acting in these tyrannical ways, can learn very skillfully how to manipulate this information so that no matter what their their benefit to the project was, no matter what their job was in the project, uh, they'll make it seem like if they weren't around, the whole thing would have you know it would have been uh, you know cats and dogs. Uh, fighting in the streets. It would have been crazy chaos, zombie apocalypse, if they were not there holding back the chaos. When in actuality, they're probably creating all the chaos that they're supposedly holding back. And it's certainly not a, um, a position of leadership. They're not taking leadership. They're not guiding and mentoring and coaching people. They're basically creating chaos and then saying if i wasn't here the chaos would be worse because it could always be worse but if you hear this again and again where you're hearing a story where an individual manager is saying it's you know it's all because of me and you're not hearing a lot of defense of the team or what the team did or what individuals did in the organization people maybe you've never heard of it's an indication you may have a problem because you have somebody who's just focused on their position um, which means that almost per definition, they're not leading others in the organization, especially if they're in like a cross-functional project. They're not dealing with others in a way that's going to get the most out of them. And they're presenting a narrative to you that is is completely self-serving. And you should be very, very suspicious of that. It's not that, you know, hey, one thing happened or one project and somebody really pulled out a real heroic effort and you want to thank them. That's That's great. But if you hear it again and again, it's an indication that you have a problem. At the minimum, you have a manager who is not really leading people. They're in it for themselves. And that's the danger because that's only going to get worse over time, quite frankly. Um, It's a big danger. Now, what's interesting is that some people get blinded by this because these managers in a larger setting will drop praise on others and on the team. Okay, so if you have a situation where you have a business a project manager or program manager type, and there's a big project that involves technology. And they're constantly complaining about the technology department, which is a very common thing. Um, technology department's uh, incompetent. They can't uh, you know, figure out what way is up. And if I wasn't there pushing them 24-7, then nothing would get done. They'd all sit on their hands and stare at the wall all day, right? Now, if they're in a, a larger status meeting, let's say, and management representation is there from the technology department, they're going to drop little uh, you know, kudos onto the teams here or there. Um, even though they may have yesterday been complaining, They even if they work for you, they may have been complaining about these individuals the prior day. But in the context of this larger group, they're going to drop this kind of uh, bit of praise on other teams. Um, and they'll do that judiciously and usually in a way that ties back to their... You know, being the 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 source of that um, you know good outcome, but they will do that, which uh, then causes people, even in like in this case in the technology department, to say, well, at least she she did or he did say this was a you know it was a team effort, the team did good, and I've seen this you know time and time again where you have a manager acting in a very dysfunctional way, but they're smart enough to drop these kudos onto teams that they've basically tortured. And the senior leadership over these other departments will then parrot that information back down onto their department saying, well, I just want you to know so-and-so said we did a great job and it's always difficult, but so-and-so said we did a great job. So good job, team. And so teams then learn to, well, I, I, how can we say this person's terrible now that they've praised us? but you've got to think about it's all in the service of that one individual this is not in the service of the organization or the department or the customer it's in the service of the individual and again you're hearing the the hero supposed hero singing their praises but it, it's always going to be one sided a lot of details are going to be left out especially if you're managing this from a PowerPoint perspective. Always have to be cautious of that. So if there's too much self-praise going on, you probably have an issue. Um, The third item, and this is probably happening a lot more than you realize, is uh, prep meetings, meetings for meetings. If you're not aware if this is going on or if you don't think this is going on, it's probably just because you don't have visibility to it. If there's anything that involves a PowerPoint deck, I guarantee you there's a pre-meeting for the meeting. And sometimes this is not bad. People want to get on the same page. Maybe there's multiple departments. They want to have a conversation. But there there is a process where the pre-meeting is really about one manager forcing the narrative. And so you'll see this in a couple of ways. One is uh, it seems to take forever to get an update on something. And usually this means that The manager that you're relying on to get that update is getting data from other departments but is unhappy with the data, so has to massage it in a certain way. But obviously can't out-and-out lie, so you have to manipulate it in some way that's adjacent to the truth but tells a certain narrative that you want to have told. Um, And this takes time. You know, it just takes time to craft a story, right? Um, Any any, uh, uh, screenwriter or author will tell you that. You can't write a book in a day, at least not a good one. Um, so there, there's that delay between um, I need an update and getting an update. Now, some in some organizations that have a very low tempo, um, you won't notice this because everybody's kind of gone into the tempo where, you know, every month we have a meeting. And so three weeks before that meeting is, we'll start to craft a deck. In a big status meeting, one of the easiest ways to tell if this is going on is if you hear, and you have to be observant to this. If you hear any other people in the meeting, representatives from other departments, make a comment that they haven't seen the deck beforehand. And so they won't say this explicitly, but they'll make some comment, some kind of passive aggressive comment about, oh, well, do, do we have copies of the deck? And you'll you'll have to think to yourself, well, if it's a technology project and the technology people are in the meeting asking to see a copy of the deck, why wouldn't they have a copy of the deck? Um, because it's produced with their input and they're part of the crafting of this information, why are they not seeing it? That's a big red flag because it means that the manager who's presenting the information has kept it from them Uh, on purpose, probably because they're saying something or they're leaving something out that they don't want to have in the deck or they've crafted it in a certain way that they want to position in a certain way um, where they're afraid that they would have gotten objection from that from the other department. And they're hoping that in the context of a big meeting that nobody's going to want to cause a big crisis. And so they'll just keep their mouth shut and then think, well, maybe I'll deal with it later. I'll correct the record later. Um, but of course, we know, you know if if the newspaper makes a big front page article and it turns out that it's false and they write a correction on page six the next day, well, nobody sees the correction, but everybody rem- remembers the big headline. and that's the same problem with these, you know, this kind of management by PowerPoint process. So if you're ever in a big meeting, a project status meeting, and you hear somebody say, oh, I need the, I need a copy of the deck, or do you have a copy of the deck, or can you email me uh, the deck, they'll mention this often because they want to get it, obviously, but they're also trying to communicate in kind of a passive aggressive way that, hey, uh, I didn't really have a, a hand in the crafting of this deck, and I may not agree with everything that's said, but I may keep my mouth shut for political reasons in the meeting. And so at that point, as a senior leader, you want to dig into that and say, how was this information crafted? Who, who crafted it? Does everybody uh, on the same page? Does everybody agree with what's in this deck? Is there anything missing that we need to know about? Um, and asking those direct questions, it becomes harder for people to kind of keep their mouth shut because they feel kind of a responsibility to to be honest and forthright. And if you start to ask those kind of questions, the truth will come out pretty quickly. Um, And it may have a side benefit even if you don't deal with the tyrannical manager. It may have a side benefit of regulating their behavior because they know that there's a a bigger chance they would be called out on the carpet. In other words, their narrative can't – now has to toe more toward reality than it may have uh, been required to otherwise, because now they're worried that if they do something too egregious, they will definitely be called down on it. I think it's important anytime you get a PowerPoint deck and you have a bunch of different departments and people is to ask, you know, who was involved in this? Does everybody agree with this? Ask specific questions. Is there anything in here that somebody thought should be in here or should be discussed or raised that wasn't? Um, Because if you don't, um, if you don't do that, you're gonna get a narrative that is, is one-sided and problematic. Aside from the fact that PowerPoint's not a great way to manage, but you know, we'll leave that as it is. It's the way most organizations manage themselves. Um, a fourth is look out for relabeling. So this is a specific around transformational efforts and I've been involved in several big transformation efforts. The, you know, the latest vo- one in vogue is agile transformation. And this one, depending on the framework and the context of the transformation, you're talking about new roles that have new names that are totally different from, you know, standard kind of corporate titles. And so you're you're making some fairly drastic change that requires people to either new people to come into the organization or the existing people to do quite different jobs because the, especially in the case of an agile transformation, the jobs are quite different and you're eliminating a lot of kind of... Uh, unessential work and jobs and job titles and that kind of things. If you're doing a real agile transformation, you're going to have some big changes in that regard. And so, and unless you're getting rid of most of the people, um, which is, I don't know that I would recommend that. So let's assume that you have all or most of your uh, staff remain. They're going to take on new roles and new titles. And it includes these mid-level managers, And so when you're doing this, you need to be on the lookout for mid-level managers who want to relabel themselves. So they want to take on their same portfolio of work, maybe some additional work, and change their title to align with the new structure but you've got to ask yourself if if they have the same portfolio of work, what's really changed? And the answer is nothing's changed. That's the whole point. And so you have to be very cautious. I, I've seen this especially in agile transformations, the big problem. There's a problem with uh, project managers to scrum masters, which is uh, can be done in some cases uh, very successfully depends on the individual. But there's a bigger challenge of uh, product owner roles in agile transformations, I think, where often the product owners will come from a business side uh, and you'll have these same kind of mid-level managers will want to be product owners, not because they want to be a product owner and all that that means and working with the team and being a part of this, this new structure. They want to be product owner because they don't want anybody else to have the power of being a product owner. Um, and so they'll put themselves in that position, but not give up any of the of their portfolio of work. And so, you know, I've seen an example. One one of the most egregious examples that I've seen is a big business division, a big product, the biggest product in the portfolio products of the organization, needed a product owner for this product area. The particular mid-level manager who had been involved in all the technology projects and causing all kinds of chaos for years, and you know everything that I've listed thus far was evident in that situation, complaints from multiple angles, the self-praise, um, the uh, you know prep meetings on prep meetings on prep meetings, and the PowerPoint decks being kind of a narrative that didn't make any sense or didn't toe to reality. All this stuff was evident, but this individual didn't really want to be the product owner and all that that meant and the way that the job is really described, but wanted to be the product owner because didn't want anybody else to have the power. And so you have an individual who constructed a product owner role but also included other ancillary projects that were not part of the product portfolio. And so this basically looked like the old job. It's just I'm overseeing all this other stuff. I've just relabeled everything. And that's a big red flag that, well, nothing's going to change. And so whatever tyrannical behavior was happening before is going to happen now we've just changed the words now we're calling it sprints and agile and scrum masters and product owners and this kind of stuff but we're not fundamentally changing the organization the real big problem of that is is that you as a leadership team hopefully the team and not just one person but even if it's one person kind of driving change in the organization you've made some commitments about we're changing we're doing something different and now this is communicating that now you're just relabeling everything. You're just changing. You're just painting over the sign, changing the name. But fundamentally, nothing has changed. It, cynicism uh, kind of embeds in the organization at that point, and people, the employees, the ones that you most need to stand up for the change and to be most aligned to the change, uh, begin to think, "Well, this is all kind of fake. You know, this is not real, and uh, this is kind of a joke." And they, you know, they disengage from it. And eventually you kind of wonder, well, what are the benefits of the change effort? And that's because you never really change. You never really forced the organization to change because you had a mid-level manager acting for themselves only, acting in a tyrannical way, but relabeling uh, enough, making enough change so that they embed themselves in this new process. But fundamentally on a day-to-day basis, not changing the way they act at all, not changing the way they manage at all. And it's perhaps, especially in the case of an Agile transformation, it's inconsistent with the whole point of the transformation. And I suspect with most, you know, even if it's not Agile, any kind of transformation, it's, it's going to be inconsistent if your intent on your transformation is to improve the adaptability of your organization, the flexibility, those kind of things, which are, are common no matter what you call it, um, and no matter what kind of framework you use. Um, so that's number four. Number five is uh, one that I've written about before. Um, I think on LinkedIn, I post something about this, is what I call the independent third party gambit. And this is a problem of if you have a tyrannical manager, it's a gambit that they'll use. It's also a gambit that incompetent managers will use. So if you have a situation where you have managers who've been promoted through Peter Principle and they've kind of hit their, their maximum level and they, they, they are, are incompetent in their current job and they really should kind of go down a level um, you'll see them use this. And this is really the fault of senior leadership if they allow this. and I've only seen this in a couple of organizations. Um, and it just happened these are long-lived hierarchical organizations, but i've you know I've seen it uh, twice in uh, you know in three d, let's say, and I've heard about it in in many more organizations. So this independent third party gambit is when you have a manager or a leader of department or of a department will act as if they're a completely separate third party to their department. Um, And this also applies if you have somebody who's over a kind of a cross-functional project, but um, it's, it's most obvious if you have, you know, if you have a manager of the help desk, right? And then something happens in the help desk and the help desk does something and there's a crisis, there's a problem, you know, something gets messed up or whatever. And you're calling the manager to account from a, hey, what's going on? You know, how do we improve the situation? What happened? All the standard stuff, right? Interrogation that happens in corporate America all the time. And the manager of the help desk will then talk about the failure of the team to do something right? They won't take any accountability for them as the leader. They'll describe how the team failed them, basically. And if you're a a senior leader and you accept this argument, you're kind of going down a really bad path. um, Because incompetent managers will use this to any kind of failure, they'll separate themselves from the failure. It wasn't a failure of mine, it was a failure of the team's. And they won't take any accountability for uh, leadership and mentoring and helping the team overcome problems or even discussing, yeah, this was a problem and I, you know, didn't know what was going on or somebody did something wrong, but I'm the manager of the department and here's what I'm doing and here's how I think we can fix it. Or, you know, I have no idea and I need some help. I need somebody to to help and to talk to and to um, try to figure this out. Those are all, those are all legitimate responses um, in a, in a good organization. But if you have managers who play this, um, This this game acting like, you know, they just they're just walked in off the street and they see kind of chaos in this department and they come and Oh, this department's really screwed up. Well, all these people work for you, don't they? They, It doesn't dawn on them. And I don't know if this is intentional. And so with some people, I think it's intentional with others. I think they just they've seen it work and they play that card. And uh, if it continues to work, it just continues to work. And I see this also in in projects and sometimes if you have a project manager and you have a culture where you have project managers who have very little influence and power, they will justifiably say, you know, things didn't happen and I I don't have any power to move this stuff, you know, I can't push this and I don't have the credibility in the organization and that's a legitimate problem. But if you have a a manager level person who's overseeing a project or a cross-functional effort, you'll, you'll often hear this third party gambit as well especially the same managers who are acting in tyrannical ways. Um, and they'll pull this argument of, you know, I'm I'm a uh, uh, basically a genius. Um, I'm the one holding back to the chaos. and it's it's this project team, this particular department that failed me. Um, and you'll hear this again and again, they won't take accountability for their own leadership of the situation. You know, what did I do? How to, can I improve this? What did I miss? How can I help people more? How can I change the dynamic and the tempo of this more? They, will, they won't raise that. It'll always be about the other person failed. Um, and I've seen this embed itself in cultures at very high levels where you'll have basically C-level executives playing this gambit and accepting it from their um, direct reports. And it's toxic because it seems like then the management layer in general is immune to the effects of of failure in the organization, but they always line up for praise when something goes well, right? It's it's only only a one way street here, um, so they don't act like an independent third party when it's successful. They act like an independent third party when there's failure, and you and as a leader you just can't do both. You take both, uh, you take the failure and the success, and you're a part of both of them. Um, And if you if you have somebody who's arguing only on one side, right, if something good happens, you know, call me, uh, I'll take credit for it. If something bad happens, well, my people, I don't know, they're really terrible. I used to ask all the time when this would come up, um, you know, who hired all these people? You know, especially if you have an organization that um, they'll complain often that the staff isn't any good or, you know, they're they're lazy or they don't care. And I, you know, I always wonder, well, who hired them? You know, where's the real problem, right? If we have bad staff, is the problem that the staff is bad, which is probably not true, but let's just say, is that the problem or is the problem that we have management who's hiring bad staff? Um, it seems like that's the easier problem to solve is just not to bring in the bad staff to begin with. Um, So that, the independent third-party gambit, you'll see this played. If you see it played, you have to shut it down uh, immediately. If you're in a culture where you allow this, somebody has to kind of speak up and say, hey, if we're leaders, we're leaders. Otherwise, what's the point? And if we're throwing our own people under the bus because it's expedient, then that's fundamentally an immoral act, I think. Um, And it should stop uh, immediately. You have to shut it down almost brutally, I think, um, because it'll really metastasize in an organization. Now, finally, so those were the five, you know, and there are more, and like I said, this is not a checklist. It's not a algorithm. There's no Excel spreadsheet where you punch some numbers in and it says, oh, you have a problem or you know you're safe. It's really an art. It's a feel. You have to start asking these questions, but you have to be aware of this and look at this, the complaints from multiple angles, the managers singing their own praises, the prep meeting upon prep meeting, and people don't know what's in the PowerPoint deck that you're saying, relabeling of roles, especially when you're in a transition or transformation effort, um, and finally the independent third-party gambit. If you see any of these things, or multiple of these things, if you see multiple of these things, you probably almost surely have a problem. But even if you see just one of these things, you it, it requires more investigation. Now. When you go and investigate, when you start to push back on this, when you start to question these uh, managers, you know, where where is this data coming from? What's really going on? How are you leading this effort? Why am I getting indications from multiple angles that we have a problem? Um, you're going to get a defense. And the defense, one of the defense that I hear all the time uh, from these tyrants in the mid-levels is that they're necessary. You know, if they weren't, they're so skilled that if they weren't there, the whole thing would blow up. It's kind of like you think it's bad now. You should just wait. If I'm not here, it's going to be total chaos. Now, Bill Campbell, who's a a corporate coach for most of the big technology companies, he had a term for this called aberrant geniuses. And aberrant geniuses were people like Steve Jobs, who anybody who's who's read or knows about the history of Steve Jobs, he was not the easiest person to, to deal with. But in Bill Campbell's estimation, people like Steve Jobs, you have to determine whether the chaos that they generate, the problems that they generate is worth the management overhead of dealing with those. Does the value they bring to the organization, ultimately, yes, it does cause some problems. And although in in the case of Steve Jobs, there was a migration from the way he behaved before he got fired from the company he founded Apple until he came back to Apple later. I think there was a modulation there. But there's still this question of, is is there a scenario in which this aberrant behavior is worth it because of the benefit and the value that that individual brings? And I think that that's absolutely the case. And we know this in some cases where you may have a You know somebody who's kind of a designer, artistic, and they're kind of difficult and flighty and difficult to deal with, and they seem to be bouncing off the walls, but the product that they produce is very valuable. And you think, well, as an organization, as a management team, can we structure something around this individual to be able to manage and modulate this behavior so that it's not toxic and it doesn't destroy the organization, but that we can get the value Uh, and manage that situation. And you always have to be on the lookout for that. You know, it's not that you you need to fire every asshole. Sometimes the assholes can be managed. You know, if their behavior is unethical or abusive, then, you know, you just have to, you know, cut your losses there. And I think a lot of the behavior of tyrannical mid-level managers goes into the unethical or abusive case. And I've seen, you know, both and combined, quite frankly. So, Aberrant geniuses are one case where you have these difficult to deal with people and you'll get multiple complaints and all this stuff. You won't get the shading of the truth that I described, but you'll definitely get complaints from multiple angles. But if you can objectively say, look, it's not unethical, it's not abusive, and we it's worth the extra management overhead to deal and massage the situation because of the value that that individual brings, that's all great. The problem is, is that the mid-level tyrants, these managers that I'm talking about, they're not geniuses, aberrant or otherwise. Now they'll portray themselves as such. Um, They'll say their experience and their intellect and uh, if they weren't here, everybody else is dumb and I'm the, the genius and I'm solving all the problems. That's almost universally not true in the case of these mid-level managers who've kind of worked their way up through the organization. It's almost universally not true. I've never personally seen a case where um, that was true. It's almost always the case, and certainly always the case in my experience that these mid-level managers are acting in these ways, even if they're not going over the line to abusive or unethical behavior. Um, they're generating the very chaos that they're telling you that they're 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 preventing. Um, or that they're preventing something much worse. They're actually the root of the problem. Right? Really, I take that back. Actually, you are the root of the problem because you're the leader and you need to solve for this. But they're the root of the problem that you can solve, um, that you can deal with. And they're not, you shouldn't buy this defense of, you know, well, Steve Jobs was a jerk um, because I've never met anyone who's a Steve Jobs other than Steve Jobs. And so people making that case, it's almost invariably not true. Um, just isn't not that there's there may be one out there. I'm not saying, but you'll know it, right? You'll know it. It's not a mid-level manager is pushing paper around the organization. If you have somebody who's dealing in kind of product development or de- or software development or something where they're actually bringing something unique to the table, you can ask yourself the question about whether it's worth it or not. As long as they don't go over the line of abusive or or unethical behavior. So fundamentally there is kind of good news in that, is that the, the improving the situation is not really that difficult if you have some of these indicators that you have a problem and you can focus your effort onto where you have the issue and stop taking for granted the, the line that you're being fed. And then you have to deal with the situation. And also, a lot of times I think the situation can be dealt with is you don't have to fire these managers, you have to change their outlook on life to say that this behavior is no longer um, acceptable And that's interesting, no longer acceptable because apparently it was acceptable before. If this has been going on for a while, you as a senior leader have to accept that somehow you've communicated that it's acceptable. You've accepted it um, and it became part of the process. And now you want to adjust that. And you have to be honest with that, you know, to say that maybe I... I was blind, maybe I was willfully blind to some things and and I don't think we can continue that and I need to, to improve the situation and therefore I need you as a mid-level manager over some area to act in a different way. Uh, and as we've talked about some of these indicators, just reversing those gives you an idea about what to do, right? So if you have complaints from multiple angles and you're getting a narrative that doesn't comport with the facts And people are kind of surprised about PowerPoint decks and the like. You can start to enforce some kind of cross-functional coordination and collaboration. And it probably is going to mean you're going to have to enforce that, meaning you're going to have to participate in it. And so, you know, one way to do that, especially if you're managed by PowerPoint, is to have them develop the PowerPoint with you. No, don't have them do a pre-meeting. Say, come bring the data, let's have the conversation, get on a whiteboard, let's do this organically. I don't wanna sit and have somebody read a PowerPoint deck, which is generally a waste of time. You, you know, if you if it's in PowerPoint deck, just send you the deck, you can read it faster than they can present it to you. But develop the update organically with the team that was supposedly would be developing the update. How What's going on? What are the problems? What, what do we need to do? What help do you need to do? I I'd say that that's much more useful to you as a leader than uh, listening to some PowerPoint deck. You've got the team around you. Get on a board, talk about what's really going on. That's going to have much more value. And you're communicating the value of collaboration that you want to have all the different voices heard, not because everybody, you know, you want to hear from everyone, but you want to hear all the angles because it's important to make decisions. You want to have more data to be able to make the right decisions. And so these are generally not that difficult not that complex to solve it takes time and effort and you have to put the time in um, and sometimes that seems uh you know more difficult than it should be in today's organizations but I think a lot of cases where you have problematic mid-level managers you can solve that by simply becoming more involved occasionally and this is the single digits you know these are not the bulk but occasionally you'll have someone who just is they're too baked They're they're too far gone. And the best thing you can do as a defense mechanism for your organization is to give them a severance package and thank them for uh, what they've done and move them on. You'll probably do them the best service you could because that'll probably regulate their behavior more than anything else. Um, And you'll have defended your organization. And those are cases, you know, maybe few and far between. They're small. I've seen maybe a couple in my career where, you know, I've said these managers really, there's really no solution other than, um, moving them out of the organization. There's just no other, no other relevant way to do it that would, that would be relevant on a timeline that makes sense in the organization. And you, you only you will know that one way or the other. Um, okay, so those were the things. Um, and if you have more, uh, I'm sure you do. Um, feel free to uh, send them to me. If you go to Our website, barbarians.fm, you'll see all the episodes and the show notes and there's some links to stuff like Bill Campbell and other things. I'll put those in the show notes Um, and the article I wrote about the uh, independent third party gambit, again, at barbarians.fm. If you have any topic suggestions or guest recommendations, there's a contact uh, form. You can send that over. Very interested to hear from that, uh, from all of you. Um, Until next week, thank you.